This evening we'll be taking the Lord's Supper, or communion as some call it. And a, uh, exactly a month ago, we took the Lord's Supper and we uh, looked at this text in 1 Corinthians 5, where Paul says, um, the context here is dealing with a sinning church member, but the, he, he brings in the, the sacrifice of Christ as a grounds for which we ought to maintain the purity of the body of Christ. And he says, your boasting in verse 6, 1 Corinthians 5, 6, is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? A little meaning a little leaven, meaning a little sin. A little sin in the church can defile the whole church, is what he's saying. Therefore, purge out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, since you truly are unleavened. For indeed, Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast. What feast? Well, the feast of Passover. Not with the old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. And we looked at that time at the uh, symbolism, the typology is called, of the Lord's Supper and of the Passover meal. Now if you would go to 1 Corinthians 11, where Paul uh, talks more about the Lord's Supper. Since we're having it tonight, we're going to talk more about it. In 1 Corinthians 11, he says in verse 23, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. By the way, I'm reading the New King James. It might read a little differently if you are in the NIV or the ESV. I'll keep on praying for you on that. Um, In the same manner, verse 25, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Notice here twice in this passage that we're told that what we are doing... When we take the Lord's Supper, what we are doing is we are remembering. Now, if I said to you, did you forget Jesus this week? You'd probably say, no. Then then why do we need to remember? What's going on here? Remember what? Well, if you remember a month ago, which you don't, when I talked about the Passover, God instituted that memorial before Israel came out of bondage. Yet after they came out of Egypt and even after the first generation died in the wilderness and the second generation went into the promised land, God still had them commemorate the Passover every year. So they'd already been liberated. And even in the wilderness, they had to celebrate the Passover. And then even in the promised land, when the new generation rose up and became adults and possessed the land, they celebrated the Passover. The Passover was a remembrance meal. They were remembering something. And when you go back and read the Old Testament and about the Passover, they were remembering God's redemptive acts in Egypt and how He delivered them out of the house of bondage and brought them into the promised land. So they were celebrating annually what God had done for them through His redemptive power. So we, 
likewise need to remember. So the Lord has given us a celebratory meal, a meal of remembrance called communion or the Lord's Supper. And this supper, in effect, replaces the Old Testament Passover meal. If you remember, as I pointed out before, the Last Supper, as we call it, commemorated in the famous Da Vinci painting, the Last Supper was really the last Passover. It was the first communion. It was it was the beginning of the transition from the Old Covenant to the New. So whereas Israel celebrated God's redemption through the Passover, we now, through this meal, are celebrating Christ's redemption in the New Covenant. And so we take the Lord's Supper in remembrance of Him. Um, I've told you the story before, but when my kids were younger, I want to talk about the kid that isn't here. So you guys that are here, you're good. So her name is Lydia. She's not here. So anyway, this is the one thing that pastor's kids hate more than anything, what I'm doing right now. But she had this habit of forgetting things. So, and I'm sure I've told you this story before because it's so, there's so much to learn from it. But, um, so we'd say, uh, you know, Lydia, you need to pick up your room or whatever. And and then you'd go peek in a room an hour later and it wasn't picked up. Lydia, didn't we tell you to pick up your room? Oh, I forgot. And then, uh, you know, Lydia, you need to go brush the cats. And you know, check an hour later, the cat's done. Oh, I forgot. Um, hey, Lydia, did you take care of this? Oh, I forgot. And you know, for a while there, I really thought she had a memory problem. <laughs> you know what I mean? And I, I mean, I have actually, I, I, maybe I gave her a lot of grace on that because I, I think I have a memory problem. I, I don't have a good memory. A lot of people say it's a Diet Coke. But, um, what was I saying? See, I forgot. No. <laughs> so, then I remember this very distinctly because I was sitting at the kitchen table and I asked her if she had taken care of something about that. I can't remember what it was. But she said, she looked at me and she said, oh, I forgot. And the light bulb went off, you know? It was, it was one of those moments when I realized that she's really not forgetting. She's not really forgetting. She's just not remembering. She's not remembering on purpose. And that's when not remembering becomes a sin, right? Because she was obligated to remember. And so we are obligated to remember. And God, in his goodness toward us, has given us this meal that when we gather, and we could do it weekly, and I've even contemplated that maybe we need to do it weekly, but at least monthly. We would be reminded through very concrete, physical, simple symbols of what the new covenant is really about. Just as, as Passover was the, the, uh, the feast, if you will, 
that commemorated the Old Covenant. So now communion is the feast to commemorate the New Covenant and all that is implied. And when Jesus instituted it, and when Paul reminded them of the original institution, in both of those occasions, the word remember is used. Do this to remember me. The implication being, we forget. And the fact is, we do forget. But we don't even know we're forgetting. But we forget. And so we need to be reminded, we who are even seasoned in the Christian life, need to remember what is implied. We need to remember what we have in the New Covenant. So tonight I want to encourage you to remember a few things. Can I do that? Yes? Before we take the supper, because as we take it, we're doing it in remembrance. Amen? First, we need to remember God's love that sent His Son into the world. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him would not perish, but have everlasting life. If you are a Christian, you believe that text, and you believe that God sent His Son not just for the world, but that God sent His Son for you. That God so loved you. And so we need to remember as Christians that God loves us and God loves us not uh, not in a, a simple generic way, meaning he has positive feelings toward us or that he, he even likes us, which he does. But in order to appreciate the love of God, we need to understand that this love compelled him to give us that which was most dear to him, his only begotten son. And you know, I love a lot of you, and I know I'm supposed to love all of you, but some of you I don't know. I mean, I really don't know you that well. I mean, I guess I love you in a generic sense. But you know what I mean. There's people you know well, and you do a lot for them. And you make sacrifices for them. You'd call them your friends. But as much as I love you, I just can't envision sacrificing one of my children for you. And I think that what we do is we say, well, you know, God's God, and He's impassable, which means He doesn't really have real emotions. And by the way, He knew Jesus was going to come back from the dead, so it really wasn't that big of a deal anyway. And so we deprecate the love of God in giving us His Son. But in fact, God gave us His Son, and we need to understand that was the greatest act of love ever demonstrated in the eyes of the rational universe. There was no greater demonstration of love than that God gave us His Son. And if He had given us all of the hosts of, of, of heaven, all of the angels had been annihilated on our behalf, that would have been nothing compared to the gift of His dear Son. If God had given us the entire inanimate universe, if He had destroyed every planet that existed and every galaxy, and He said, I did this to demonstrate my love for you, that would have been nothing compared to giving us His dear Son, Jesus. Because Jesus was and is the apple of His eye. And He loved and loves Jesus above all things. And by giving Him 
his, his, giving us his son, he demonstrated the, uh, the profundity and the depth of his love for us. And the amazing thing is that Jesus says in John 17, when he's praying for the church, he's praying for us. And he says to the father, they need to know that you love them the way you love me. Have you forgotten that? I think some of us have. That you, being united to his son, through the son's death and resurrection, you are now the apple of his eye. God now loves you as he loves his son, Jesus Christ. Do you remember that? That's something to celebrate. Amen? That we are the object of God's profound love. We're also the object of God's mercy because God remembered our pitiable condition. Remember, mercy means God sees us in our need. And God has compassion on us. God feels for our brokenness and our lostness. And because we are in this deplorable, lost estate, God is moved with compassion to act on our behalf. And so, uh, go to Ephesians 2. There are many, many passages that talk about this, but, but in Ephesians 2, it says, <clears throat> it describes our, our lost condition in Ephesians chapter 2. In verse 1, it says, You, you were dead in trespasses and sins. And when she was walked according to the course of the, this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as others. It says, but God, who is rich in mercy, God saw us in our lost estate. He saw us in our deadness our alienation from him, our subjection to alien and evil powers. And in this pitiable condition, in a condition of which we could not redeem ourselves, in a condition from which we could not save ourselves, God came to save us in the person of his son because of his great mercy for us. Not only did he remember our our deplorable condition and our need for mercy, he remembered also our undeserving position. And he gave us not only mercy, but he gave us his grace. Remember, God's grace means that he grants us that which we do not deserve. And we're, we're often fond of saying that what we deserve is nothing, but that's not the biblical teaching. The Bible says that what we deserve is hell. That's what the Bible says. What we deserve is judgment. It says that even even more so, before we come to Christ, we're under a sentence of condemnation. And so God sees us not only in our misery, He sees us undeserving. Now it's one thing to be merciful. It's another thing to be gracious. Because God could have been merciful. Because, oh, look at those poor, look at those poor people. They're suffering, but they're so good. I'm going to help them. They're so kind. I'm going to help them. They're so virtuous, I'm going to help them. But we were not only in a miserable condition, we didn't deserve to be rescued from our condition. 
It wasn't because we were good that God had pity on us. It was because God chose to set his love upon us. God chose to save us, redeem us, because God is gracious. And God saved us by his grace. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Grace. Verse eight, verse, verse 7, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. <clears throat> when, we, when we break the bread and we drink the wine, we're celebrating God's love for us. We're celebrating God's mercy for us. We are celebrating God's grace for us. That although, although we deserve nothing, He gives us everything in His Son, Jesus Christ. Amen? But not only do we remember God... We specifically remember Jesus Christ. We also need to remember not only the love of God, we need to remember the love of Jesus Christ himself. And that Jesus gave his own self for us. Since we're in Ephesians, look at chapter 5, if you will. Ephesians chapter 5. Paul is talking about marriage in 22 through 33. But he can't talk about marriage without talking about Jesus because Jesus and the church are, are, or should I say, a husband and wife are symbolic of Jesus and the church. Can't understand uh, the New Testament teaching on, on marriage if you don't understand the New Testament teaching on Jesus and the church. So he says, the husband in verse 23 is the, we'll just read it. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Why? For the husband's the head of the, the wife, as also Christ is the head of the church. And he, Jesus, is the Savior of the body. He is the Savior. And then he says, husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. The love of Jesus for his church led him to give Not just his time, his energy, his effort. He gave his very self. He gave his life. He laid it down on behalf of his church. What greater gift could he give than himself? Right? We think of the gifts that God gives us, that Jesus gives us. But the greatest gift he gave was the the gift that he gave on Calvary. That was it. That was the epitome of what he could do for us. And as he said to the, the uh, apostles before, right before he died, he said, there's no greater love than this, than that a man would lay down his life for his friends. And I'm, so he's saying, I'm going to show you. He called them friends. He said, I used to call you servants, now I'm going to call you a friend, and I'm going to prove to you that I'm your friend. I'm going to lay my life down for you. So there's no greater love than the love of Jesus. Amen? And there's no greater sacrifice that could have been made than that he laid down his self completely pure and sinless, completely undeserving of the scorn of men, completely undeserving of the punishment of God, 
And yet he laid it down on our behalf because of his great love for us. So we need to remember as we take the supper, the love of Jesus Christ. And nobody in this room should ever, if you are a professing Christian, no one in this room should ever feel unloved. Because there's no greater love than that which has been shown to you and for you in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. When Jesus died on that cross, He saw you. He saw you. And when He died, He didn't die just for a generic mass. He died for you. And that you must believe to be saved. Not believe that Jesus died for the world. Not even believe that Jesus died for the church. You must believe that Jesus died for you. And if and when you believe that, then, and only then, are you truly saved. I have to say, I believe, I believe churches in America are full of people who believe a generic gospel but they're going to a generic hell. A generic gospel saved no one. I told you this story many times. I'm going to share it again. I was out witnessing one time, and I was preaching the gospel to this guy, and he was kind of kind of one of those stiff kind of people. <clears throat> He's a young guy, but kind of a stiff young guy. I'm sharing the gospel with him. I'm like, "Do you believe? You know, do you believe?" And his response was, that is what my church teaches. But that's not the question. The question, not what does your church teach. The question isn't, what does your pastor preach? The question is, what do you believe? Because the, the teaching of the church doesn't save you. The preaching of your pastor doesn't save you. The faith of your your spouse or the, or the faith of your parent doesn't save you. The only thing that saves you is your own faith in receiving Christ. So when we talk about the love of Jesus Christ for his people, it is a personal A personal faith, just as we learned with the Passover, the the blood had to be applied. The flesh had to be eaten. We're going to eat the bread. We're going to eat in symbol the flesh of Jesus Christ. Now you can take the bread and not take the flesh. You can drink the wine and not drink Jesus. Because it has to be done in faith. It has to be done believing. So the question is, do we remember, do we really realize and contemplate and believe the love of Jesus Christ that when he died on the cross, he did that for me? And as my my old pastor, my first pastor ever used to say, you need to believe that when Jesus hung on the cross, there was no one else in view but you. That if you were the only person alive, he would have done it for you. And if you believe that, then you believe. We need to remember not only the great love of Jesus Christ, we need to remember 
Jesus Christ's victory over sin and the grave. Amen? 1 Corinthians 15, we could look at many verses, but we'll just look at this one. Because you see in the Bible, when the Bible talks often about the death of Jesus, but so often it's assumed in the context that the death means not just the death, but the death, the burial, and the resurrection. The one led to the other. There's no resurrection if there's no death, right? So often it'll refer to the death of Jesus or the blood of Jesus, and the resurrection is assumed or implied. Here in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul gives the gospel in a a nutshell, as we say. 1 Corinthians 15.1, Moreover, brethren, I declare you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, and in which you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Well, you got to hold fast the word that he, well, what word did he preach? For I delivered you, he's going to tell us, for I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scripture. Secondly, that he was buried. And thirdly, that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. And then he goes on and he talks about how numerous people saw Jesus after the resurrection, and they confirm the reality of the resurrection by their testimony. And then Paul goes on, he talks about the importance of the resurrection. In other words, it wasn't enough to believe that Jesus died, or or even that Jesus was buried. We have to also believe that he rose from the dead. Because if Jesus died and is buried, he might have been a good teacher. He may have even been a prophet sent by God, but he was certainly not the Savior. Because the Savior has to save us from that which is afflicting us, and we are afflicted with sin which leads to death. You see, the resurrection of Jesus, his his victory over the grave, was the physical manifestation of his victory over sin. Because the power of the grave is sin. And if you can defeat the grave, you've defeated sin. Right? So Jesus Christ got the victory over sin and over death. And Paul gives a long uh, defense and explanation of the resurrection, which we do not have time to look at right now. But toward the end of this chapter, he says um, in verse 51... Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. So whether dead or alive, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. So those that are in the grave will be raised. Those who are alive and know them will be transformed in in the, the, the wink of an eye. Well, how fast is that? It's a nanosecond, right? For this corruptible, meaning this mortal body, must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption, and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through 
our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. So when we take the Lord's Supper, we are remembering his victory over sin and over death. And as we contemplate this in the future, and we sang about it just a moment ago, this means that we will be transformed. We will be fully redeemed. We will receive a new body. There will be no more pain, no more suffering, no more tears, no more sickness, no more death. Somebody say hallelujah. No more. Because Christ has defeated all of the evil effects of sin, including death, which is the worst effect. We need to remember this, that we have a glorious future. We have a glorious hope because of the work of Jesus Christ. We need to lift our eyes off of the earth and place them in heaven. We need to be more heavenly minded than maybe we'll be more earthly good. Right? Paul tells us to set our affections on things above, not on things on the earth. Some, some Christians haven't thought of heaven in months, if not years. They are so immersed in the things of this world. But we're heading toward heaven, and it's going to be sooner than later, I believe. Thirdly, we need to remember Christ's power over the devil. His power over the devil. Uh, we read Colossians last week, but we won't read it for the sake of time. But the Word of God tells us that when Jesus Christ hung on the cross, He was disarming the powers of darkness. That is to say that He was defeating the devil. The, 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 the beautiful irony of God's work. God's, the beautiful, he, God uses uh, uh, spiritual jujitsu. Where you, you, you take the thrust of the enemy and you use it against them. That's hard to say. I'm not going to say it again. So here the devil thinks he's winning. I mean, do you understand that? When Jesus Christ was being crucified, the devil is thinking he's winning. He's, he's, he's thinking, oh, I'm destroying the Holy One of God. I'm destroying the Son of God. I'm winning. I'm winning. And so the devil brings the Pharisees and the people and, and there's this, this, this rush of madness and hatred toward Jesus and they beat him and they crucify him. And he's buried. And his disciples flee. They're despondent. We lost. Jesus lost. The devil won. But then the third day. The third day. In the very moment that the devil thought he was winning, he thought he was destroying Jesus, at that very moment, Jesus was destroying the devil. And he was conquering the power of death. He destroyed death through his death. So for those of us who know him, we will be taken out of the grave, we will be resurrected, or if we're alive, we'll be changed, and we will live forevermore. And we will never be touched by death. And we will never be touched by the devil. The redemption that we have in Jesus, as I've been attempting to remind you over the past few weeks, is a redemption that includes the fact that as Christians, we have been delivered from the bondage of sin and the bondage of the devil. The devil has no authority over the believer. 
None whatsoever. Now, you, you, can, you can grant him authority if you choose to. Because Paul says you are the servant of, to have, to, of whomever you serve. If you want to serve the devil, you can do that. But you don't have to do that. You don't have to be in subjection to the evil one. Matter of fact, we are told to stand against him. We're told to put on faith. We're told to take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And we are told to wrestle or fight against principalities and powers. And if we stand against them in faith and in the Word, we will be victorious. Yeah. So, the defeated Christian is an oxymoron. It's a contradiction in terms. And it's a denial of communion. It is a profound forgetting. A forgetting of what Jesus did. Now, either Jesus did did this stuff or he didn't. And he did. And we need to remember it. So when we're being tempted to sin, we need to remember we have we can have victory over sin. When we want to give in to self-pity, we need to remember that we are the object of God's love and Christ's self-giving love. We need to remember that we are not in bondage to the world. We need to remember everything that Christ has done for us through His cross. We need to remember, this is my last point, <clears throat> That Christ has given us His Holy Spirit, and His Spirit dwells in us. The, the, the Father gives the Son as a gift to us, but then the Son gives the Spirit as a gift to us. The Spirit, in return, gives us the Father and the Son. You know, everything that I have said this evening... Everything that I've said for weeks about the redemption that is symbolized in the Passover, everything I've said, are you listening? That's why preachers reiterate things like that. Everything I've said, I've said that about five times. Building up to something, aren't I? Everything I've said is a dead letter to you, apart from the Holy Spirit. Sounds good. It's a dead letter when it comes to your life. If it is not made real to you through the Holy Spirit. There are people all over the place for whom Christ has died who either do not even know Jesus or if they know them or if they know him, they're living uh, defeated lives. The fact that Jesus Christ conquered sin hasn't changed their life. The fact that Jesus Christ has redeemed them from the power of the devil has not changed their life. Because these things are not real to them. What makes all of this real? When we talk about God's love for us, when we talk about God's mercy and God's grace, when we talk about Christ's love, when we talk about Christ's victory, when we talk about Christ's power, what makes all this experientially real to us? Not make it true because if it's true, it's true, right? If things are true, they're true. They have an object of reality. It's true. 
But it doesn't mean it's real in my life. It just means it's true. Do you read the story recently about the couple that found $10 million in gold coins in their backyard? Amazing story. Yeah. Coins were dated from the 1840s or 50s from the big, the big gold rush era. These people were millionaires and they didn't know it. But what they put their hands on the gold, now they can experience the wealth that was always there, buried in their backyard. My friends, God has given to us His Holy Spirit and He's a lot more valuable than $10 million. The riches that He gives are of more value than $10 million. And we have the Holy Spirit of God in us. And the Holy Spirit of God takes the riches of Jesus Christ and unfolds them to us. And if we want to know the reality of Christ's love, if we want want to know the reality of His victory over sin, if we want to know the reality of everything that Jesus Christ accomplished on the cross, it is made real in our experience. It is made real to our consciousness through the work of the Holy Spirit. Christ's Spirit to His church was His parting gift. He said, it's good that I went away. It's good that I'm going away, is what he said. It's good for you, I'm leaving. Well, Jesus, don't leave. I want to be with you, Jesus. It's good that I'm going to leave, because then I will not just be with you, I'll be in you. I'll be in you. And by being in us through his Holy Spirit, we can know his love in an experiential way. We can know his power in an experiential way. We can know his victory in an experiential way because his Holy Spirit dwells in us. Do you remember? Or did you forget this week? Do you remember that you're wealthy? Do you remember that you have power over sin? Do you remember that you have victory in your life? Do you remember that you've been redeemed from sin, from the world, from Satan? Do you remember you don't have to live defeated? Do you remember that you don't have to live sad? That you don't have to live murmuring and complaining? You don't have to live under any of that because the Spirit of God dwells in you. Do you remember? There's gold coins in your backyard. You're rich. You're rich. So why are you living like a pauper? Thinking, oh, you've been watching Benny Hinn, Pastor. (laughs) Nope. Just been reading my Bible. Just been reading my Bible. And the Christian life is a life rich and full of Jesus Christ and everything he purchased through the Holy Spirit.
It's a full life. It's a rich life. It's not that there's never battles. It's not that there's ever struggles. It's not that there's never tears. Oh no, I'm not saying that. But I'm saying that you can live a victorious, rich, full, abundant life in Jesus Christ through His Holy Spirit because Jesus died so you could have that. That's what you need to remember. It's yours by covenant. It's yours. And some of you need to get in the backyard and dig up the coins. Okay? Dig up the coins. Because you're not cashing in what God has given to you. I know I said last verse. I always lie about that. But. <laughs> Ephesians, you're lying in the pulpit. This is not a good sign. Okay. Ephesians 3, Paul's praying to the Father, and he says in verse 16, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might. How? Through his Spirit in the inner man. There's the Holy Spirit, right? That Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you being rooted and grounded in what? Rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and the length and the depth and the height and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge. Literally, to know the unknowable love of Christ. How do you know that which is unknowable? Because this is not a knowing, which is simply a knowing to the reason. This is a knowing to the soul and the spirit. Okay? You can know Jesus died for you and not know his love. This is what's called revelation knowledge. This is the knowledge that the Holy Spirit grants to the true believer. That he sees Now, not just with his mind, but he sees with the eye of faith. He sees in such a way that what is real is real. It's not simply a doctrine. It's not a Bible verse to be memorized. It is the thing that is most true. And it's true in the believer's experience. To know the unknowable. Love of Christ, that you might be filled with all the fullness of God. That's the abundant life. That's a description of it right there. This is what God wants for his people, that they would be filled with all the fullness of God. Not the fullness of sin, not the fullness of doubt, not the fullness of sickness, not the fullness of all this other junk, not the fullness of bondage, but the fullness of God. This is what he wants for us. Somebody say amen. Amen. Okay. This is what he wants for his people. And then he tacks on this prayer. Well, the whole thing's a prayer. But he says, Now to him, meaning God who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. What he's saying is, 
He's saying that what I just described to you about the spirit in the inner strengthening you in the inner man. What I just what I just said to you about knowing the love of Jesus Christ, really comprehending that which is, transcends reason, that which I've I've just told you about. Guess what? God is able to make this true in your experience. God is able to do this through his power. Not only is he able, he's exceedingly, abundantly, above all able to do it. I mean, Paul is being like, just over the top. You get what I'm saying? He's way over the top. He's not just saying God's able, or God's exceedingly able, or God's abundantly able, or God's above all able. He he just goes on and on and on and on. He's like saying, are you listening to what I'm saying? He's able. God's able to make the love of Jesus, the power of the Spirit, real in your life. Are you hearing me? Abundantly, exceedingly, above all, He is able. That's what He's saying. Now that's something to celebrate in communion. Amen? So, in conclusion... Do you remember? Or are you like Lydia? (laughs) Oh, I forgot. You sin. God says, Do you remember? I forgot. You fall into self-pity. God says, do you remember? Oh, I forgot. You fall into murmuring and complaining. God says, do you remember? Oh, I forgot. Let's remember. Amen? Not just tonight. But let's remember. Let's remember tomorrow and Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday. Let's remember. Or should I put it this way? Let's stop forgetting. Because you see, I got to the point with Lydia where the day came and she said, Oh, I forgot. And I said, Oh, I remember I need to spank you. (laughs) So if you keep forgetting, God's going to remember to spank you. (laughs) So you stop forgetting. He doesn't want to spank you. He wants you to have the abundance, but you have to remember. Amen? Let's stand together. Dear Lord Jesus, words are never sufficient, Lord, to thank you for your self-sacrifice, to thank you for your victory, to thank you for your Holy Spirit. Lord, words are never sufficient, but yet you, you command us to give you the sacrifice of praise. 
you tell us to do this, to offer up spiritual sacrifices. So, so Lord, we're going to do that in obedience to your word, even, even though we know our praises are, are nothing compared to what you've done for us and what you've given to us. And Lord, as we take the, the bread and the wine, bless it to our souls. May we take it, Lord, remembering. May we take them in faith, believing. May we take them in truth, experiencing you, Jesus. We remember you. We remember your death. We remember your burial. We remember your resurrection. We remember your victory. We remember your power. We remember your grace. Lord, we remember. And we thank you. We praise you. We worship you because we remember your great everlasting love. A love that really was placed upon us before the foundation of the world, your word says. A love that rescued us out of our misery. A love that redeemed us by grace, even though we are so undeserving in ourselves. And I pray, Lord, that through the work of your word and your spirit in our lives, that we would truly know the love of Jesus Christ. The knowledge surpassing love. The the above reason love, the the transcendent love of Jesus Christ. And I pray that for each one of us and that by knowing that love, Lord, we would be filled, that we'd be filled with your fullness. Lord, I pray that as we go our ways tonight, you keep us safe. Um, on the roads. Guard and protect each one of us, I ask. And bring us back next week to worship you and to praise you. And Lord, throughout the week, remind us. Throughout the week, may we remember your love, your mercy, your grace, your power, your victory, and your Holy Spirit. And we ask it in Jesus' name, for your glory alone. Amen.